All right. Welcome back to the Focal Point Podcast, the April edition. I'm Peter Orsak. I'm here with my co-host, Toby Barrett. Hey, John P. Um, we got a great slate of interviews for y'all today. Uh, this is our last cycle, actually, um, as full-time hosts. Um, Dylan Wyatt will be taking over next year as the um, incoming host. Um, but as for today's episode, uh, I talked to now former uh, opinions editor Axel E. Cosbalceta about a artist he really loves uh, and finds a lot of meaning in. And I talked to 12-year marksman and former uh, assignments editor Will Pachersky about his time at St. Mark's. Yeah, and Dylan uh, talks to future focus editor Miles Lowenberg, um, who, who wrote a column taking a satirical look forward at the college process, which he'll be undergoing soon. Dylan also talked to Jonathan Yin, our former in-depth editor, about uh, his special bond with his twin brothers. And then I got the chance to talk to Pete um, about his 11 and three quarters years at St. Mark's. Uh, he looks back on that. And then we have a, actually a guest column this cycle, uh, Tomek uh, Marcheski, and he talks to me about cooking and why we should all do more of it. Yeah, so we got a great episode for y'all today. Um, let's get right into it. All right. I walked into Ms. Cario's classroom on the first day of school almost 12 years ago. I had no expectations. The blue shirts of the seniors seemed too far away to even think about when I was having the top of my life as a lower schooler. It doesn't feel like it's been more than a few weeks since Peter and I met Cole Beasley at an SMU football game in first grade. Even today, I still owe Henry $5 for a bet we made on the playground at school, unless I make it to the NFL. And my eyes still light up when I hear someone talk about Doc's cookies. Whether it was sprinting away from the infamous poison ball or learning how to properly shake someone's hand, the experiences and memories gained in Doc's PE classes will stick with me. Those are just a few of the countless memories ingrained in my head as a marksman. And that's just lower school. Trying to capture all of the highlights from the last 12 years into one column of writing is simply not doable. But as I think back upon these memories and consider why they've stuck with me for so long, I've realized that these are the moments that have made St. Mark's such a special place in my life. Not the math homework, not the English papers, and the phys- not the physics labs. While all undoubtedly important in getting me to where I am today, the lifelong memories were made when my classmates and I were thrown into our own world. Whether it's PE, mat ball, or playground football, those were the moments when the lasting lessons and experiences were formed at a foundational stage in our lives. Those trivial, seemingly insignificant settings host some of my most memorable experiences. But none of this hit me until, this, until the Friday leading into my last winter break. Classmates I've known for over a decade all gathered outside with our lower school buddies. Walking into the crowd of hundreds in the Great Hall with my first grade on my shoulders was when it all clicked. With vivid memories of me on my senior buddy's shoulders back in 2010, still fresh in my mind, this past all-school Christmas party was not one of the 12 that I'll forget. I can't even try to imagine the wave of emotions that will hit during commencement. But until then, I can't say thank you enough. To the marksman soon to be in my position, all I can say is to enjoy it while it lasts. Because, like always, the end will feel too soon. And Henry, I'll get you that $5 sometime soon. Maybe.
right, I'm here with former assignments editor and soon to be Texas Longhorn, Will Bacherski. Cherisk, how are you doing? Doing good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, first off, I'd like to thank you for the shout out at the beginning of your column. Um, oh, of course. That photo of us meeting Cole Beasley, it's still on my Instagram. So definitely a moment yeah. I'll never forget. Yeah, that's, that's a great picture. Um, but that was just one memory you shared with within your column. Um, another that immediately made me chuckle was your bet with Henry Bacogli about making it to the NFL. Um, while you were probably six or seven when you made that bet, uh, you're now 18 and you sort of filled out your frame a little bit, you know, put on some muscle. Um, how do you like your chances of making it to the biggest stage in professional football? You know, honestly, I don't love my chances too much right now, but I, I do like the confidence that I had at the time back in I guess I was first grade when I was six or seven. Um, so it's not not really looking too good right now, but you never know. I mean, maybe maybe one day it'll it'll turn into something. Yeah, well, I was on your flag football team and I will say you're a very talented receiver. Um, so nothing's nothing's changed. I don't think you're a great quarterback to have for me. Back then. <laughs> um. Yeah, if you did make the NFL, I'm not sure you would even really need the five dollars. Um, I guess you didn't really have a great scale of how much money was worth. Yeah, wasn't thinking about that too much, but maybe <laughs> maybe I'll have to maybe I'll leave it in my will for Henry. Yeah, that, that sounds like a good plan. Um, another memory you talked about a lot uh, were the experiences you had in Doc's PE class, uh, whether it was like him making cookies or or just dodgeball or whatever. Um, do you have a specific memory from any of those hundreds of classes that really sticks out to you? Um, one thing that I definitely remember more than like just kind of all the games and stuff is when he, I think I mentioned it in the column, when he kind of, he lined us all up and like went one by one with us to like show each of us how to make, how to like shake someone's hand properly, which was just kind of like really, it stood out to me as like, I guess probably first or second grade when he did that, because that's something that like we don't really ever learn or talk about in any other classes so that was definitely a unique thing that i'll that'll stick with me yeah for sure um and kind of staying in the in the pe realm um as a as as the creator of tsunami and the namesake of uh, grape eater peter i may be a little biased um but what's your favorite game we played on the playground or in pe class i think we had one called um buzz on the playground and it was pretty much just like tag with like a red ball called like the buzz ball or something i think got banned somehow but it was that was definitely a fun one while it lasted yeah there's there's probably a few timeouts on the wall spent because of that game um yeah maybe got a little a little aggressive but i do i do remember buzz ball very competitive yeah um and kind of forward to to this year um you mentioned uh, kind of the wave of emotions you felt walking down the great hall with your little buddy on your shoulders. Um, what was that moment like for you and why was it so special? That was definitely a really cool moment. Cause I remember like the first time we did that in first grade when I was on my buddy's shoulders and we walked in and just kind of like seeing all those people when you're a first grader, just like looking down at them, um, looking down on them, um, from your senior buddy's shoulders and then kind of like doing that again, like before Christmas break. Um, just kind of like remembering that from all the way like 11 years ago and it just doesn't feel that long ago. So it was really cool kind of getting to walk in there and having that same experience being on the other side of it. Um, definitely something that I'll remember for a while. Yeah, for sure. That was some, that was something I mentioned, uh, in my 11 and three quarter year column, yeah. uh, not quite 12 years like you, but, yeah. um, <laughs> 
And, um, you know, uh, Will, you and I have been uh, pretty close buds, I would say, for the last 12 years. Uh, I remember when we met at Thackeray Park before first grade. Uh, I remember the days we spent trying to get past round 20 in Black Ops Zombies. Or I remember uh, repeatedly beating you in one-on-one basketball. Um, what's one of your favorite memories uh, from the past dozen years as a marksman that you didn't mention in your column? Mm, past dozen years. I think one thing that I don't, I don't really like, it doesn't come up a lot um, as one of like the memories is in our, like, one, I think it was fifth grade humanities, I guess, Mr. Clayman, like, gave all of us in the class nicknames and they were just like really random things like ian was batman or something and cooper had like a bunch of random names and it was just kind of like a funny thing that he did it's not really like a specific memory i guess but that was just something that like we all thought was pretty funny <laughs> it's like a like darren was like some like spanish word i think it was like la machina or something because he was really <laughs> good at like diagramming sentences but that was just kind of like a funny thing i remember from middle school do you remember what your nickname was I think I was like Luckenbaugh. Um, I don't really know what it was. It was like some weird spelling that he gave me. I, I don't even remember, but it was it was a great great memory. And do you have any comment um, about what I had to say about Black Ops Zombies or or one on one basketball? Yeah, Zombies was tough. I remember setting some like when we would, I think we first figured out something um, like buying guns off the wall or something <laughs> like that. Um, something. I don't know, but that was definitely fun spending a lot of time doing that. And basketball, I was never, maybe, maybe beat you a couple times, but I was typically, you were typically the one dominating. I do remember um, in Black Ops Zombies when we got to like round five or six for the first time and the, and the, the hounds came out and we like had to turn off the game. And like, that was a rough experience. Yeah. I remember that. It was very scary. Seeing that. was probably another couple months to recuperate after that yeah, uh, we, we made it through <laughs> we persevered um and uh moving on uh you know like obviously you've you've done a lot of stuff with journalism um but besides that uh what would you say has been the most impactful experience you've had at st mark's maybe like a sport or a class or a club that you've been a part of uh, i don't think doing telos over like last few years of high school something that's been really cool because i remember kind of like when we had older kids do that for us as fourth graders and they would come in and talk to us and kind of like getting to share some advice with fourth graders now having gone through all that has been really cool yeah that's sick i remember yeah like in in fourth grade or like our my telos uh guy he was he was like really cool so i i imagine it's it's fun to be on the opposite side of that yeah it's fun those have a ton of questions to ask about just like random things <laughs> it's it's fun to listen to yeah um and this is something um we talked about before the interview uh but if you had to wrap up uh 12 years into one word what would it be and why i think i would have to go with remarkable as my one word. Um, I mean, it's definitely hard to sum up everything that's happened in the last 12 years, but it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of great experiences and you got to shout out the remarker with that one. So <laughs> I think that, that's a fitting word. Yeah. Dr. Pun approves. So. <laughs> Perfect. It, it, no. um, and yeah, like the, uh, we're yeah, obviously we're about to graduate. Um, do you plan on staying close with most of your classmates uh, in the coming years? 
Yeah, um, I definitely hope to keep up with them just through social media, I guess it will be the easiest way. But I'm looking forward to kind of coming back um, and seeing everyone on like breaks. And then when we have our start having our reunions, I think that'll be really fun. Hopefully I'll get to reconnect with all those people. Yeah, I'm excited. Excited to see where where y'all are at in a few years. Um, (laughs) And yeah, my final question, kind of uh, more focused on journalism. Uh, you've over your last, I guess, three or four years in the program, if you want to count J1, uh, you've helped create around 20 newspapers, uh, 12 magazines and a few podcasts. Um, what was your favorite thing about working on the newspaper? Favorite thing. I think one of the things I really like each cycle is our pitch day and like just kind of listening to what everyone like all the different ideas that everyone brings up, because I feel like like you go home and kind of come up with your own pitches and then you come to class and everyone just has like a ton of different ideas that like you just would never think of. And like, it's really cool to kind of hear everyone's unique angles on like different topics and even like things that seem obvious in the news or whatever. And then like people come in and have like really unique angles. So I think that's definitely been something that I've liked uh, each day of a consistent thing in class each cycle to have. Yeah. And as assignments editor, I guess that's, that's pretty fitting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that's that's all I had. Um, thank you, Will, for for all the time you spent on the Focal Point podcast. Uh, this is our it's our last one, so oh, a little wow. bit sad. Yeah. Oh, thank uh, you. Yeah, but it's in good hands. So I'll, I'll talk to you later, Will. All right. I'll see you. My dad got a call. Without hesitation, I immediately put on my favorite pair of cowboy boots, some blue jeans, and a Texas flag button-down shirt. Drip. After tossing a neon orange nerf football into the trunk, we headed off to a place I didn't know much about but would soon learn was my home for the next dozen years. Well, 11 and three-quarter years, but we'll get into that in a second. Just three months later, my dad was dragging me into Spencer Gym for the first-grade lockout against my will. Luckily, this painfully shy and socially awkward little kid wasn't alone. There were 31 other boys sitting on the baseline of the basketball court and Doc Browning greeting us with a welcoming grin on his face. It was here at 10600 Preston Road that I learned PEMDAS, parts of speech, and the half-life of Carbon 14. It was here that I scored my first touchdown on tackle football. And most of all, it was here that I created friendships and memories that will last me a lifetime. But it's easy for people to imagine their future was always guaranteed that it was always in the cards. And for me, it felt like it was until my parents sat me down one May afternoon in 2012 for a talk. They told me we were to be leaving our life in Dallas for Tulsa, Oklahoma, forever. Judging from my reaction, you might've guessed they had informed me that Santa wasn't real, he is, or that Maverick star Dirk Nowitzki died, or that SpongeBob would be taken off cable television. But no, seven-year-old Peter just couldn't bear the fact he may never see his friends again. Fortunately, this forgettable sin across the Red River didn't last, and I joined Mr. Jordan's homeroom as if nothing had happened. I was back to collecting baseball cards, chowing down a purple cow, and sitting through chapel twice a week. And now, as I write this column, all I can think about are the stories I would have missed out on if we never came back. Like the time a herd of horses stampeded through our camp during the third grade campout. Or the time we shaved Coach Hale's head after beating ESD. 
or the time Cole Norman received his iconic name, Terry. When we ran through the streets after rolling the hockey daisies, when we fought over weak calls in three-on-three basketball league, when we walked down the Great Hall with our little buddies on our shoulders. I could truly go on and on about what this place means to me, how it has prepared me for the future, and why, if I could go back, I'd do it all again. But for me, it's really not all that complicated. What makes this place so special is the relationships I've forged over the past 12 years. Well, 11 and three quarters years. talk about his last column how you feeling pete pretty good pretty good what about you uh, i can't complain um obviously this is kind of a farewell to the paper or maybe like to expand on that it's a farewell to like school in general um and to begin that farewell you kind of start by describing your first memory of st mark's in impressively vivid detail considering how long ago like it must feel to you can you talk a little bit about why like that memory sticks in your mind or maybe why it was the one you chose to build around yeah, I just remember um, I had gotten into maybe Green Hill and Parish, and mm-hmm. I didn't really know like what all these schools were. I knew Green Hill had peacocks and Parish had like cookies. Um, <laughs> that was essentially my impression. And I hated St. Mark's because I thought their playground was terrible. Um, but when my dad got the call that that I had gotten in, he was just so excited that I I just felt like I had to be excited too because something good must have happened. Yeah, uh, so. He kind of sported me in some some Texas attire, and uh, we headed up to the football field and uh, tossed the pigskin around. And is that the memory that like made you choose St. Mark's, or did your parents? Um, I think, yeah, I don't, I don't think I was necessarily the one that chose St. Mark's. I think my family like knew um, it was the best school that I'd gotten into and the the best opportunity I had. And right. obviously, I was like six, so I just trusted them and. <laughs> You know, I'll say 12 years later, I think they were right. So uh, I can't complain. Yeah, because could you, well, could you have seen yourself at, at Green Hill or Parish now that you've spent like good, well over a decade at the same place? No, definitely not. Um, I mean, we kind of have a rivalry with Green Hill a little bit. Yeah. Or at least they like to think they're our rivals. Um, <laughs> and Parish is kind of in a, in a different realm, not really FBC or, or anything. So. I don't know. It, it's hard to imagine myself anywhere else from from St. Mark's. And I guess that's kind of why um, when I did leave in third grade or at the end of second grade, it was it was pretty tough on me. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that the thing that haunted you actually in that move was the friendships. You spent so much time with these guys like Will Pachersky is a good example, our former assignments editor, uh, people you spent like your whole childhood basically with uh, like these guys are basically your brothers. Are these connections like you never really leave behind? Like, do you expect to see these people that you've known from like age six or seven, like at your wedding, whenever that happens? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, I don't know when that'll be. Um, hopefully not too soon. Right. Um, but yeah, these, the, I mean, all of y'all, even people that came, you know, junior year, freshman year, whatever, like mm-hmm. these are, these are my brothers at this point. So it, it's, we got we got a we got a long 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 road ahead of friendship, and I think um, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, 
Also, a through line of the narrative uh, that you've, you wrote is like the growth that you exhibited since that first day sporting, like all that drip. And that to me seems pretty on par with like the growth that St. Mark's necessitates from every student. Um, I've been here four years, which is seems fleeting compared to your 11 three quarters. And um, I've noticed that having spent so much time at St. Mark's, um, like literally walking every single hall that's possible and like being in every classroom that like anyone possibly could have. You think that like the same quality that turned you from like painfully shy to now like talking to people on air regularly and then like um, posting that for a lot of people to like listen to is something that like stick with you. Like what, what is, what is like the growth aspect of St. Mark's going to, going to lead you with going forward? Yeah. St. Mark's is like uh, really bursted me out of like kind of the bubble I was in. Um, I guess probably until I was, maybe 10. I was like a super shy kid. And then um, I just started becoming really close friends with these guys and felt more comfortable around them. And then that kind of led into new people I was meeting and, and all my other relationships. Um, And so I've become less and less shy over the years. And yeah, like you said, now I run a a podcast, which if you told six-year-old me, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare run a podcast. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's so much, like you said, growth that goes on in St. Mark's. like we pride ourselves on teaching the whole boy and, um, and a lot of that, um, growth for me came in the, in the form of, I guess, uh, bursting out of my bubble. Was, was that something that like St. Mark specifically like pushed you to do like getting out of your comfort zone and maybe like forcing a change? Or is that something that you kind of like saw the opportunity for and then kind of gradually grew into? Yeah, I think like, I mean, early on, like they provide a lot of opportunities for you to lead, like even like there's like class positions in like second grade and third grade and fourth grade. And so like one of those years, I don't remember, I was either like a class president or secretary, you know, who knows, but like getting the opportunity to have some position and, you know, have something to do around campus and then like book reports in middle school and other opportunities to talk in front of in front of large groups of people and like the life skills class in fourth grade, which mm-hmm. although we hated at the time, Miss York was a wonderful teacher, wonderful woman, and a lot of great life lessons were learned in there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just so much. I, I don't even know where to, to be in with that. Yeah. And something I also feel like I see sometimes or like I hear about is that like St. Mark's kids are like really distinct. Like when they step off campus, like they're very like, I don't even feel like we're like, I, I get complimented sometimes about being polite, but I'm just like acting how I normally do at school. Um, is there something like distinct about St. Mark's kids? Like, is it, could you see one like walking from a mile away? Like a marksman? Um, yeah. I mean, maybe probably because they're wearing St. Mark's clothes. Um, that's okay. probably <laughs> Wait, I mean, what's, what's distinct about like, about like someone that like goes to St. Mark's. Yeah, I think it's, um, I, I would say the maturity, um, like we, sometimes we're immature around each other, but like when it really comes down to it and you actually have to be serious, whether it's class or like a presentation or you're like representing the school in some way, whether it's sports or debate or whatever, like everyone has, I would say like maturity far beyond their years. Um, and like, you see that with like sophomores, like on the newspaper, you know, they're interviewing big sources for like a, maybe even a cover story. We saw that with like Grayson this year. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, I don't know many 14 or 15 year olds that can, that can really do that, uh, at a high level, like, like I've seen so many times here. Um, so I'd say, yeah, the maturity, um, and the general respect that, um, we have for other people. Um, and like, like you said, the manners, like, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, stuff like that. Handshakes. I think that's uh, a big part of, you know, teaching the whole boy and something St. Mark's likes to pride itself on. Yeah. Now to get to like the back to the column, um, you mentioned that the talk, you put it in quotes. Um, how much of it do you remember? And like, did you see it coming? Uh, I didn't really see it coming. Like, uh, I don't remember the specifics of it. I know my sister knew like at least a few months before. Um, and I maybe had thought something was like, like, why were they like whispering to each other or something? Like maybe something was weird, but I don't know. I was eight and I was probably focused on SpongeBob or, you know, flag football or whatever. So I I definitely didn't see it coming. It was a, it was a huge surprise for me. Um, and you know, like I'd only been at the school for two years at that point. Um, but like, it was super tough to, to have to change schools just because of like how awesome this place was and like doc Browning and all the great teachers, uh, in lower school, they just made like, they made school actually pretty fun. Um, so it, it was pretty tough to to leave. And what was it? What was the other part of that question? Well, it was just, did you see it coming? Which you also answered. Yeah, no, I definitely, definitely was a big surprise. And when, like, I guess you, att- you attended another school when you were um, across the Red River. What, you remember a lot about it? Yeah, I, I went to Holland Hall for about three months. Uh, yeah. um, and it was, I, I can like picture the school, picture the classrooms and stuff. Um, but I, you know, there's maybe like three kids that I remember, um, total. Um, and I, I don't know, like, it's not like I keep up with them at all. Um, I kind of try to put that in the past and don't really think about it too much. Um, but I didn't necessarily have a negative experience there. It's just that, um, for me, at least it didn't really compare to what I had at St. Mark's. Right. And why, why didn't your stint across Thread River last? Uh, my dad, he had a job there and it ended up didn't, uh, it didn't work out. So we ended up moving back. Uh, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And finally you, you enter a column with a string of memories of St. Mark's that must've stood out to you. Um, on your final time of being interviewed on the podcast, could you give us some of your favorite moments of working on the remarker? Yeah. Um, I mean, just generally, like all, almost all of my favorite moments are probably on work Saturdays. Like, like I, you could even think about like our last work Saturday, like we could not stop laughing over probably something that was just not funny at all. Um, and that, that wasn't an, an original experience. That was pretty much every year we were like that. Um, so kind of, I, I don't know when you put in like hard work with a, with a group of your friends, whether it, like it could be football or, or I don't know, debate, like I said, um, you're going to have a lot of fun. You're going to like build really strong friendships, um, through that shared hard work. And that's something that we really get here. Um, as for a a specific example, uh, I'm struggling to think of one. Uh, I think just last year's, my, my class with Eric, you Luke, Nafa, Rajan, uh, Robert and Grant. And there's, there's a, there's a few others I can't remember right now, but we were, that was just such a fun class. We, we kind of messed around a lot, but we, we also got a lot of really good work done. So, um, yeah, I would say that. 
Well, great. Um, thank you much so much for the, the final interview. Um, and I'll, I'll see you around. Yeah, thanks, Tobes. thousands upon thousands of pages of English prose and poetry in my life, but none of it has surpassed the elegance and artistic essence of the lyrics sung by Japanese-American singer-songwriter Mitsuki Miyawaki. The spoken word may move thousands of arms, but the sung word will move thousands of tears, and I believe the letter to be a more extraordinary feat. Here are a few of my favorite Mitsuki lyrics and the reasons why I realized I had not seen true art until I went to a Mitsuki concert in February of this year, surrounded by hundreds of little sad queer people just like me. Toss your dirty shoes in my washing machine heart. Baby, bang it up inside. Baby, though I've closed my eyes, I know who you pretend I am. Washing machine heart. There are few worse feelings than just being lied to about how much you mean to someone. Few worse feelings than thinking you hold a special place in someone's heart, to think you're irreplaceable, then realize you're just a placeholder. Personal growth is a long, arduous, and messy journey. You will get angry and sad. You'll make other people angry and sad. Feelings will be hurt, hearts will be broken, relationships will end. The best I can say about this process is that if you are conscious of what you're doing, you're self-critical by yourself, and willing to accept you're not perfect, there will be a light at the end of the tunnel. There will be a better version of you whom you'll eventually grow into. And this better, more mature, more compassionate version of you will bring joy and happiness and a million more good things into your life and the life of those around you. This developed version of you will, in a sense, make up for all the hurt feelings, broken hearts, and failed relationships, so long as you really do change the person you are. But if you're not conscious of what you're doing, you're not self-critical, and you just go along with your life, never learning, never growing, never realizing the damage you've done to others, the light at the end of your tunnel will just be a train barreling towards you. This is what I learned from Washing Machine Heart. I don't need the world to see that I've been the best I can be, but I don't think I could stand to be where you don't see me. Francis Forever. Not being seen sucks, but not being seen by that one person, writhing in emotional pain. There are times when we just have to get over ourselves. Usually this is the case when you're crushing on someone. Your crush barely knows you, they don't care what you're doing. You may think you're in love, but you're not. You know, maybe 10% of the type of person they are. You made up the other 90. Get over them. But when you really know someone, when you really love them, and you start to feel invisible to them, horrible. I don't know what this feels like, and I don't want to find out, nor do I want to be on the other side. I wouldn't wish this pain on my, onto my worst enemy, and if I put someone I love through this, I kind of live with myself. So my suggestion would be, if you're starting to feel invisible, communicate. Let the person know you don't feel as important to them as they say you are. Start a conversation for the both of you. It won't be easy. It needs to be a two-sided conversation, but it'll save a lot of emotional troubles, troubles for both of you. And if you're on the other side, either do something to make them feel special again or let them go. Put in the effort to communicate if they really mean anything to you. There can be no in-between for your and your loved one's sake. This is what I learned from Francis Forever. Mom, I'm tired. Can I sleep in your house tonight? And I'll leave once I figure out how to pay for my own life too. I'll leave what I'm chasing for the other girls to pursue. 
Mom, am I still young? Can I dream for a few months more? Class of 2013. Oh boy. Ever since I was accepted into college and practically finished the important part of my high school career, this is a horrible way to view high school, by the way, class of 2013 has been rattling around in my mind on loop. I'm terrified. I don't know exactly what to do from now on. College won't be too different from high school, so I won't be completely lost there, but still. I don't exactly know what to do from now on. The time to dream has come to an end. The time to make those dreams come true has come. <clears throat> the pressure is on, the expectations are high. All the work I've done for the past 12 years is, in a way, coming to a head. Time to do what I've dreamed of doing for the rest of my life. And I'm terrified. This is what I learned from class of 2013. So I don't blame you if you want to bury me in your memory. I'm not the girl I ought to be. But maybe when you tell your friends, you can tell them what you saw in me and not how I turned out to be. Goodbye, my, my Danish sweetheart. This is the first Mitski song I ever listened to, so I think that's why I decided to include it last. As I've thought about the past four years of my high school experience, I cringe a lot. As a very different, much more embarrassing person as a freshman, as a sophomore, the main reason for this was my maturity, which, granted, can't be changed, but it doesn't make senior year, senior year Axel not wince when he remembers the many stupid things freshman year Axel did. Goodbye, my Danish sweetheart, puts into music the sheer power of a lack of growth, one way or another, in personal relationships. For most of your relationships, you won't be the mature, polished, final product of a person you will leave the world as. For some people, they will never mature and grow up. And when this intersects with with romance, the results are devastating. Too often, we fall in love with the perfect image we have of a person, not the person themselves. And when that person doesn't live up to our expectations, we are disappointed to horrible proportions. Sometimes it's the person with the image's fault. Sometimes it's the person who didn't live up to the image's fault. Either way, people get hurt and the result isn't pretty. So don't beat yourself up for not living up to the perfect image someone has of you. You're not perfect. Try to love the genuine, imperfect person you're with. It'll be better for both of you. This is what I learned from Goodbye, My Danish Sweetheart. I think everyone who goes to this school for more than two years should listen to Mitski. Lyrics on. We can all learn much from her. She sings to a deeper emotion that we tend to either ignore or suppress. It would be more useful to embrace these often more troublesome emotions. And of course, I would be remiss and regretful if I did not mention who got me into Mitski, who showed me the true meaning and artistry of her lyrics, and whose Mitski playlist I listen to. Cheden, thank you. I love you. Former opinions editor Axel Ipaz Balseta. Axel, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm excited for my last ever uh, focal point feature. Yes, last ever. Um, so you wrote a column about one of your favorite uh, musical artists, Mitski, yes. um, and you mentioned at the end of your column that uh, Chelen, uh, if that's how you pronounce it, showed you this artist. Um, when did you first start listening to Mitski, and what was your first impression of her? Uh, first started listening over the summer, probably toward the end of the summer. My first impression is that it was a very, uh, 
different sound than I, than I heard in a lot of other artists. I think the, the first thing I, I, I like register when I listen to music is sort of like how it sounds, the voice, um, the kind of, I guess, vibe that the artist is going for. Um, then when I started to listen to lyrics more, I was like, oh, this like means something. It's like, oh, I'm thinking now. <laughs> But uh, at the beginning, I just think of the beeps and the boops, and 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 the beeps and boops were different than the other beeps and boops I listen in other music. So I see. That was that was interesting. What kind of music does she make? Um, I'm I'm not sure how to describe it. I think maybe what it's like, like categorized like indie alternative. Okay. Which I guess is is an okay categorization. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, that's it, it, it's pretty cool. It just I guess weird is well, that compared to what i do is that like a so that's not really a genre you normally listen to or uh, well it's not one that i listened to beforehand really because i hadn't really experimented too much with like listening to different artists as much mm-hmm. so it, it was just different from what i listened to before yeah which was just well yeah the kind of, kind of like maybe like three four years ago anything that was on the radio that my parents showed me and then later it was like i got into city pop because i watched the youtube video about a city pop song i was like oh i like this <laughs> but yeah um yeah i guess i just had not really listened to just a mitski type of music before, okay really. and moving away from the beeps and boops as you <laughs> describe um throughout your column you explained Different concepts Mitski helped you realize or empathize with, mm-hmm. such as leaving home for college or dealing with heartbreak. Yes. Um, but the one message that stuck out to me the most um, was the lesson you learned from Goodbye, My Danish Sweetheart. Yes. Uh, so can you kind of explain again for our listeners what you learned from that song? And uh, more specifically, why did you why do you cringe at the thought of your younger self? Uh, the, the, the reason I cringe at the thought of my younger self was that I was very... Um, uh, very cringeworthy person in ninth and tenth grade. Um, it was just, uh, I, I, in a word, I was a dumbass, and I guess I just did a lot of dumbass things that a young, immature, like arrogant, cocky, like thinking that oh, I'm so smart and wise and all, this shit, and all that type of guy would do. So mm-hmm. and and then a bunch of other stuff that I just I don't get into because it it hurts me this inside. Was it like with girls or or guys or was it? It was, it was just everything, everything. Okay. It was like that. That is is, is the era. <laughs> I, I it's like I I don't regret it because that sort of fourteen to sixteen year old stage in your life is like that point where you're like you're learning everything, but you also have that idea that like oh I'm I'm older and mature now. Mm-hmm. So I mean, um, would I ever want to be that again? No. No, um, I would wish my kids didn't have to go through that, but they probably won't. And it's good because it's kind of when you really, you, it's when you make all your mistakes that you then learn from. So mm-hmm. 14, 16 is, well, it was the mistake era of, of my life. Um, and that from, from, and that's just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and for some people, uh, like music is just a way to relax or dance or or vibe, as you said. Uh, would you say you use music as a way to self-reflect? Uh, some music, yeah. So some music like Mitski uh, is, is, is a bit more self-reflecting. And other ones are, yeah, kind of more um, music to vibe, to music to dance, to music to, to I guess, uh, to, to relax. But I think the reason I wrote, I wrote Mitski was because it's the one that really makes me think the most. I think uh, it... Um, the way I approach Mitski and like thinking about her music and her lyrics isn't the way I do with most artists. Is that Mitski is particular is special because I think her her uh, 
So she conveys messages that I hadn't really heard of or thought of before. And that's what really resonated with me and got me thinking. What's your favorite uh, song by her? Um, uh, there's a couple. Uh, um, the, my favorite of, of those four would probably be Goodbye My Dennis Sweetheart, probably because it, it's the first one I heard. And it just, um, <clears throat> both the way she sings it and the, the beeps and the boops, like the music and stuff, is, is very nice. I, I like that one. And then another two I like are Townie and Drunk Walk Home. But um, the lyrics I like from those songs weren't, um, I, I didn't know how to write about them for the newspaper that would be uh, Ray Proved. So I was like, uh, let's uh, let's go with some of the other ones. A little a little racy, a little um, inappropriate maybe. Yeah, kind of, and also maybe some ideas that wouldn't be the the, the best to convey in, in the newspaper. I but see. The, 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 they're good songs and and they serve they serve a good purpose and they, they got me thinking about stuff. So like if if one of our listeners is like oh I want to get into her music yeah. like I really like what you had to say about it yeah. what song would you start them off with? Um, yeah, probably the same one I started off with, okay. uh, Danish Sweetheart, just because it it's it, it is it, it's not too surface level. It, it, yeah, it's not surface level that it doesn't like get someone to like get off of it. I think it's maybe one of her more like uh, audibly pleasing songs, uh-huh. um, and doesn't get too too deep like maybe Townie or or Drunk Walk Home could do. Uh, maybe another good one would be. Uh, uh maybe nobody it's it's also like there's also a, a deep meaning to those lyrics but it's only once you think about it a little bit more and then the music also sounds kind of nice good beeps and boops there to get people interested in her her style of, of music okay cool um and you say early on in your column the spoken word may move thousands to arms yeah. but the sung word will move thousands to tears and i believe the latter to be a more extraordinary feat um how do you compare like poetry to to music? Um, well, well, I, I think I think they're very similar. I think more like this, the, the the spoken word is more about sort of like uh, speeches or, or kind of prose types. So I think uh, poetry and music are very very similar in that sense. That they um, and the, the spoken word conveys kind of the more just the, the the face value meaning of the word itself, whereas poetry and, and music, which is just poetry put to to to, to lyrics and, and different. Variation melodies. Pace, yeah, and melodies that's it just <clears throat> well, what they do is it's not only what it says but also the structure of what it says and like the double meaning of words and the the, the structure and also with poetry it's, it's it's a bit more constricting it's a bit more deliberate than um than prose so with poetry you you, you can't you you can think of why did they choose this word but also why didn't they choose another word because there's you can think of a bunch mm-hmm. of like if, if you look through a poem or, or a song you can think of there's lyrics to this word but why choose this one in particular and think about the connotations it brings and, and all that stuff gotcha yeah um so besides mitski uh who would you say your favorite contemporary songwriter is contemporary uh probably hoja the irish um Singer songwriter. He's most known for "Take Me to Church," but it's it's mm-hmm. uh, a lot of his other work is um, I think better and yeah. more uh, meaningful. I only know that one song, yeah. but that is a good song. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good song. But a lot of his other work is better. Better. Okay, I'll have to I'll have to give it a try. Um, and my final question: You kind of spoke on this a little bit earlier, but why did you decide to write this call? Uh well uh, like kind of like I said in the, in the, at the beginning of the comedy um going to the concert and seeing I guess the performance aspect that Mitsuki also put into the songs not only the, the actual 
meaning that the words had. It, it also kind of opened uh, my eye to kind of the more of the meaning that they carried. And I, I couldn't really convey that in the column or like even in, in this interview just because you kind of have to see it to, to like mm-hmm. really um, see see what, what it brings, like the, the, the emotion it brings out. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what... That that's what would make me think. Oh, this is this is like, this is a, a different type, a truer type of art than I've seen before. I was like, I, I like this so much that I'd like to write about it. And then it became this the very long column. This is, <laughs> I think, is is the longest column we we've run this year. Really? Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll take that as a, as a point of pride. I guess. Yeah, it's an accomplishment. Yeah. Um, so was everyone actually really sad there <laughs> at the concert? Uh, <clears throat> like that's a. Uh, during certain songs, because she had, Domensky definitely has her, her sadder songs, and I could, I could, I, I could sense the, the the humidity in that room going up like ten percent because of all the tears coming out. <laughs> but it, uh, yeah, it, it was. I could, I could tell it, it was definitely um, the most of the people there. Uh, to, to get granted to, to a deeper extent than to me, it meant more. I guess to to, to most people who were there to concert with where, where I was. All right. Well, thank you for talking to me, Axel. I know this is your last time on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So sad. Yes. Uh, we'll be handing it off to uh, Dylan and uh, maybe maybe another co-host. We'll see. Um, but thank you for coming on. You've been a very frequent and amazing guest. Thank you very much. Peter. All right. I'll talk to you later. Talk to you later. seems to have their own reason for not cooking for themselves. Whether it's too hard, too expensive, or even too messy, there always seems to be some kind of barrier that renders the idea of nutritious home-cooked meals just out of reach. And why? Cooking isn't hard. I know how that sounds, but it's the honest truth. It's a basic life skill necessary for our survival. I can see where the misconceptions come from, of course. Looking up cooking on YouTube yields either too intense Gordon Ramsay videos or basic cooking recipes that quickly turn out to contain ingredients no one actually has in their fridge. Where on earth does one buy a daikon radish anyway? Given the influx of culinary media we receive that's designed to entertain, with slow-mo shots of difficult methods and kitchens full of expensive equipment and outlandish ingredients, the average person can be forgiven for thinking that cooking is something reserved for those born with the gift. And indeed, that kind of cooking is... Gourmet and professional cooking is hard, and those who do it are known specifically for their ridiculous work ethics and self-destructive tendencies. But cooking at home doesn't require knowing how to deconstruct an onion or remove the poison sack of a pufferfish, nor does it require the use of seven different carbon steel knives. All you need to cook a healthy filling meal at home is a good recipe, a good knife, and a tennis skillet. That covers literally three-quarters of human cuisine. Leave the recipe making and fancy plating to those who get paid to cook. Just learn to sear a steak and saute some veggies, and you're well on your way to being able to feed yourself well for the next nuclear winter. It's not like I say this out of a desire to drag others into my hobby. Society simply needs more people to be knowledgeable about the food they eat. The pandemic proved that perhaps we won't always be able to order takeout whenever we're hungry, and the ongoing worldwide obesity crisis is primarily a result of people lacking awareness of what constitutes a healthy diet or lacking the means to stick to one. Health foods and superfoods are an upper-class thing. No one living from paycheck to paycheck can afford to buy Whole Foods quinoa. But maybe, just maybe, 
If we all knew a few essential weeknight recipes, we'd be less reliant on prepackaged and takeaway meals and a better health because of it. Chevsky, a senior uh, in my graduating class, uh, to talk about his guest column. Thank you for being here, Tobin. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Tobik, how long has writing a column on cooking been brewing in your mind, and why now? Honestly, writing a column for the market was something I kind of always wanted to do. Uh, I joined sophomore year, obviously, so journalism wasn't like really an option for me. Uh, but, you know, writing for a newspaper is just kind of cool. Uh, but, and, you know, I saw that graduation was, was kind of coming up. There was, I think, one more remarker cycle. And I figured, you know, maybe if, if, if the time to write anything was, if there was a time to write anything, it was now. And so I reached out and I asked, hey, like, do you guys have a space? And they did. And cooking is something I know a fair bit about and have strong opinions on. So, voila. <laughs> Are you a cook? Is that is that part of the reason that you took arms to encourage uh, the readers? Yeah, I, I cook for fun. Um, I took it up over quarantine, as I think a lot of people did. And I, I've pursued it like a fair bit apart from that. Um, and it was the kind of thing I never saw myself doing until I tried it. And so that's why I always try and get my friends involved. And, and through this, this article, hopefully some people in our community involved, because it gets a really intimidating, it, like, the people get a good reputation, right? People see cooking. It's like, oh, better leave it to people who know what they're doing. But the truth is, like the actual techniques aren't super difficult as long as you could read a recipe and have like two pans and a knife in your kitchen. Right. I also think a lot of the reason people don't cook is for like convenience sake, because it's really mm-hmm. easy to just like order something off like Uber Eats or like um, Postmates or something. How do you like, how do you find time to carve things out to like make yourself something because it's time consuming and there's there's the option to just like order something that can be delivered to you i think it's it's really down to like the learning aspect of it where in the beginning cooking anything takes an inordinate amount of time because you don't yeah. know what you're doing the first thing i made was like chicken shawarma and i spent like an hour getting the spice mix ready because i was like jumping all over my kitchen looking for cumin um now i know where it is it doesn't take me nearly as long uh and Again, it's like cooking brings me joy um, in addition to, you know, like the various health benefits and the fact that I can control what I'm eating. Um, so it's it's like it, it's a way that if I've been studying for too long, I'm like, okay, I'll take a break. I'll make dinner or, or lunch. Um, and if once you've like got the rhythm down, once you know what you're doing in the kitchen, it's mm-hmm. not like that much more. It's not that. Yeah, it's not that much more convenient to order takeout. I mean, there are plenty of these challenge YouTube videos. It's like going to Taco Bell and getting a, a Crunchwrap Supreme versus making one at home. They time it and it's actually like, it comes out quicker to make it at home. Um, sure, ordering Uber Eats is very, very convenient. But to be honest, I'm always disappointed with takeout food, especially now that I like know how to cook my own. So right. um, I've actually long wanted to start cooking and I had a brief stint, but... Um, I don't really know where to begin. I like I made like quesadillas or like scrambled eggs, and after that, I I got lost. How how do I start? 
Um, I think YouTube is a really often overlooked resource. Uh, you have all your tutorials for specific recipes, but yeah. a lot of the best cooking YouTubers, uh, I'd recommend like Ethan Hobosky, um, Jay Kenji Lopez Alt, who's a professional chef who stopped cooking and just started a cooking channel. And um, if anyone's ever heard of Binging with Babish, that's a lot of fun to watch and also very informative. Um, they'll often teach you more about like cooking techniques as opposed to specific recipes. So, you know, how to saute a piece of meat or make a stew or stir fry. Um, and having that capability to, to know how to make a wide array of recipes as opposed to one specific thing with the technique means that you can look in your fridge and just kind of go, oh, here's what I have on hand that kind of fits into this category. And like with a some kind of protein, vegetables, I don't know, a can of tomatoes, you can probably make any like stew you want. Um, so yeah, basically consuming a lot of cooking media uh, will eventually lead to cooking recipes, I think. Um, and there's plenty of guides for new cooks out there in terms of like what equipment you need, which is, spoiler alert, not a whole lot, um, and what recipes are like easy for first-time cooks to try. Right. What are your favorite dishes to make personally? Uh, I make a mean shrimp scampi. Um, my, my dad studied in Italy. And so he always made us pasta like as a, as a family dish. And so that was like, I naturally gravitated towards just cooking that, like those dishes. Um, and I, I found a good scampi recipe and just kind of through trial and error made it like more of my own. Uh, so that's really fun. Uh, just like I don't know, general noodle dishes are, are probably my favorite. Though a good like bolognese, you can make a big pot and have it for the week in advance, or freeze it and like defrost it in twenty minutes if you want for a quick weeknight meal. That ut utility over over like complexity is is often uh, is often the way to go. And for those like those people who are either in college or like heading off to college next year, is cooking yourself like cooking your own meals is that a cheaper alternative than to like eating out every time i mean obviously college provides the convenient like meal plan right mm -hmm. your dining hall is probably going to be right next to your dorm room um and it's probably going to have if not like good food it's going to have edible food that's super convenient if you're studying right um but the thing about college is from what i've heard uh, it gives you the freedom to to plan your day out a bit more the way you want it because yeah. um, you spend less time in the actual classroom. Uh, and because of that, I really don't see a reason why people shouldn't, you know, just cook their own food. Partly to, again, health reasons. The freshman 15 can be avoided with home-cooked meals. Yeah. Um, but also, it's like, it's not that difficult. I just got back from a college trip and my tour guide's like, yeah, I live in an apartment with four guys. We just take turns cooking. And and I think that's, a, you know, A, it's cheaper because... You can control the amount you need, which is very important. If you, you know, if you buy a meal plan, you get however many meals, and most people don't use all of them. Um, and the other thing is, you can vary that diet, like however you want, so it's tastier too. I, I it, it's a win-win-win. I think a win-win-win. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, give give like the listeners two or three kitchen tips that you wish you had known, like before stepping in for the first time. Ooh. Um, don't go in over your head. Uh, a lot like I, I bought a subscription to um, uh, America's Test Kitchen. 
And I would like browse the recipes. I was like, oh, that looks cool. And it would just be the most ridiculous, like you have 30 seconds to whisk this as quickly as you can or else it burns kind of a thing. Um, be, be realistic with what you can cook and build up. Uh, and the other thing is learn to dice an onion correctly. Um, the number one, like using the, your knuckle to, to, um, to guide your knife so you don't cut yourself and learning the correct way to dice an onion so you get correct, like even pieces of onion um, is the beginning of like knife skillery. Um, and I may not be amazing, but if I can do that, I can certainly cook like 75% of, you know, savory dishes. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Talk about cooking. I hope to now get in the kitchen a little bit more and see what I can, uh, what I can do. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Don. sits just under the window in our walk-in closet, flanked by a pair of folding plastic chairs. Hidden behind a curtain of haphazardly organized clothes, its wooden surface is scratched and stained, scarred by countless temper tantrums and accidental spills. It's where I used to do battle, long afternoons spent daydreaming while I was supposed to be memorizing stroke orders and vocabulary for the tenth circle of hell known as Chinese after school, even longer evenings crying over long division while my dad looked on, frustration emanating from his very being as he tried the hardest to stay patient. Just think about it like this, he'd say, stabbing his finger into the offending problem. What do you need to carry over? The two? It was, in fact, not the two. Sadly, I was, and still am not, very good at math. If I were, then we wouldn't have been in those situations, would we? But despite my unfailing incompetency, this table still holds a very special place in my heart. And even though I moved my homework into my room long ago, I've learned far more at this table than any class could ever teach me. Throughout the years, it's been my closest companion, my steadiest mentor. Coming home in the dark after soul-crushing practice, barely able to muster the energy to get out of the car, I'm, greeting, I'm greeted enthusiastically at the door by my twin brothers, and all of my worries and responsibilities fade into the background, melted away by their beaming smiles. My bags are suddenly weightless, and I can't help but smile myself. At home, I'm Guga, their older brother, their caretaker, their advocate. Although they are 15 years old, they still have trouble formulating complete sentences. They still need help to hold the pencil properly, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Caring for my twin brothers has taught me the most important lessons in life, and it's been an absolute blast. I'll be the first to admit it. I'm probably not a very good brother. Between the raging tsunami of never-ending work and classes, I can barely comprehend. Why did I sign up for Physics C again? And the constant cycle of water polo practices and games, I hardly have any time to spend with them. But when we do have time together, I often find myself at this table again, overlooking the cohort of Italian cypresses standing vigil in her backyard. Except instead of doodling absentmindedly in the margins of my pace homework, now, eight years later, I'm holding Jesse's hand as he fills out a seemingly indecipherable edition worksheet, reminding him to use his fingers. I'm looking into Jeffrey's beaming grin, and I can't help but smile as I try to tell him to try to get him to tell me about his day, this time using complete sentences. I will forever cherish these moments, no matter how frustrating they can get. 
When Jeffrey and Jesse were first diagnosed with autism, I was seven years old. I thought I knew exactly what it meant, that they would take all of my parents' attention, that I would never have the relationships that my classmates had with their siblings, that they were different. And I hated them for it, jealous that mom and dad seemingly no longer cared about my drawings, jealous of other kids with normal families. How wrong I was. As we've grown together, we've grown closer together than I ever thought possible. Something I would eternally be grateful for. So thanks. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to be your big brother. You guys have taught me more than you could ever realize. To walk a mile in other shoes. To love unconditionally. To always offer a helping hand. And although I'll no longer be able to take care of my little brothers in person while I'm at college, I'll always try to be the older brother to everyone around me. The goofy mentor. The voice of reason. And most importantly, an ever-present source of love. Maybe I'll even bring the table. depth editor Jonathan Yin. How's it going, Jonathan? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. So I know your column was about you growing up and being a big brother and a role model for your brothers, Jeffrey and Jesse. So can you talk a little bit about why you decided to write this column? Um, Yeah, sure. So um, over the summer last year, uh, we were actually brainstorming with the editorial board about like column ideas, and this is something that we kind of came up with together, um, me and Evan actually, and it's kind of just like been sitting on the back of my head for the entire year. But I'm pretty glad that I got a chance to like uh, get it printed before the school year's over. Yeah, it's awesome. It was a really great read, and I remember you, you talked a little bit about how it was oh painful to be sitting in seeing that infamous table you referenced multiple times and how when your dad would get angry with you for getting math questions wrong and how you said that that table was taught you more lessons than any class you've ever taken. So could you talk a little bit about some of those lessons that you learned? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess like the, what I was trying to say is that like, um, it's through like teaching my brothers at this table that I've learned about like being a good person and like, how to like take care of others and just like it's shaped my worldview so much so not so much as like i've i'm a better learner when i'm like uh studying at that table but more like it's taught me about life yeah you talked to you segued off i'm going to segue off that and when you talked about how when you were seven and you got your brother's diagnosis you felt a little angry because you thought that meant you'd be put in the shadows and your parents would prioritize your brothers, but how did you? Re- when did you come to realize that this was an opportunity for you to really bond with your brothers and become a role model for them? Well, uh, it definitely took a while, but um, one thing my, my parents always told me was this Chinese proverb, "San Xiong Di," which is like um, you gotta like take care of your brothers, right? So at first, it was kind of just like. Uh, like do what your parents tell you what to do but over time like as i saw other people who were like helping my brothers too like throughout therapy or like 
training sessions where um, these professors from UTD would kind of like teach parents with kids with special needs what to do. I began to see like if these people that have like no blood relation to my brothers can be so helpful, like shouldn't I do the same? Yeah, it's awesome. And so what were some moments or you think you can think back on uh, that, that you really felt were memorable moments and really special bonding moments between you and your brothers? Uh, that's a good one. Um, honestly, I think like the most special thing is like um, just like teaching them is like kind of routine, but there's also a lot of other people that are like helping with their education, like my parents, um, like uh, the special education teachers at the high school. And so I guess like one of the things I like the most is like when I come home and I like, um, I talk to them and I, I'll realize that they've learned a completely new thing that we haven't gone over or something that we've been working on for a while, but I haven't been able to make, make much progress. So like just seeing them being able to progress even without my help is really the best part, I think. I guess you kind of said it already, like what I love most is for them to be like fully independent and like able to take care of everything on their own. Um, we're making progress, but um, yeah, just like thinking about like transitioning into when I go to college or like when I get a job and like I won't be able to always take care of them. How will they be able to like um provide for themselves yeah how do you think teaching being able to teach your brothers throughout your whole life has helped you as a person oh um i'd say like the main thing is that it's definitely given me a perspective that not many other people would be able to have so um i i guess like it's allowed me to be more empathetic um, and it's also taught me a lot of patience too. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a younger brother as well. So I'm always looking up to my older brothers, seeing what he's doing with his life, seeing how he's been able to be successful. How do you, what do you hope your brothers, whenever they're looking up to you and they see what you've been able to accomplish, how you've been living your life, what do you hope that they, they would be able to say? What do I hope that they'd be able to say? Uh, Honestly, I'm not sure. Oh, uh, I just want to be someone that they can be proud of, I guess. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, thank you so much. I thought that was a, it was a really great interview. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. the talk with your parents before it you were young and naive now your life has changed that's right the you need to stop screwing around and think about applying to college talk we're at that time of junior year i've heard so much about it's a strange world out there it used to be you could just go to trump university or crusty clown college and you'd turn out just fine but now you need to be one with the college you need to speak their language so I can be your translator for now. 
Here's a few helpful terms. We have a holistic approach to admissions. Translation, we fairly consider every aspect of your grades, test scores, and extracurricular activities, unless your dad donated a library. We have a great relationship with our area's Native American community. Translation, good thing there's no Native tribes left in Boston to object to our new billion dollar building. Our tuition is very affordable. Translation, you might not like those crippling prices, but where else can you delay adulthood by four years in a socially acceptable way? This essay is not required. Translation, this essay is required. Test scores are optional. Translation, you really fell for that one? You're going straight to the reject pile. Remember, you need to get your ACT together too. I heard some people talking about how 35 was such a great score. They need to dream higher. My SAT score is 400 points higher than that. And of course, don't forget college webinars. You don't need to go to them as every college says the same thing. Big surprise, your college of choice wants yet another enthusiastic learner who can fit into their diverse community. So remember, be holistic, be diverse, don't get kicked out of St. Mark's. And one day you too, just might be able to become that one jerk who always brags about the college they went to 30 years ago. Issues editor Miles Lohenberg. Miles, how's it going? Pretty good. Good. So your column talked quite a bit about the college process and admissions process. So can you talk a little bit about why you decided to write this column? Yeah. So I'm still a junior, so I'm kind of new about the new to this. I don't really have any experience with it. My parents just kind of made me go to those like Zoom seminars where they talk to you about the colleges, and there are a few kind of unintentionally funny things about that so i kind of wanted to point some of those out yeah i've been to those as well and they do seem to talk quite a bit about the same same things which is kind of awkward since they're completely different colleges around the country but you talk quite a bit about having a holistic approach to admissions and part of that is having just a whole person uh application not just your gpa and test score so can you talk kind of how you uh, approach that how you could make yourself stand out from all the other admissions? Well, I think one easy way to stand out is to write an essay about, for the newspaper, about the college seminars and why you don't like them. I think the colleges really like that. Yeah. When you make fun of them. <laughs> yeah. So that's a perfect way to be holistic. Mm-hmm. So I know as a junior, I know other uh, marksmen might not know, but when you're a junior, you start going to college admissions meetings and they start telling you about the college admission process and a lot of what you talked about they they touched on so how do you think your calm matches up with how college the college admissions meetings went well i mean the meetings they're kind of useful for for like this for basically giving you the outline 
But really, it's just kind of the stuff that you do, I feel like, that's going to make the difference. Because they can give you the best advice possible. But if you are uh, got a 58 on that last math test, totally not me. Then yeah. It won't be that useful. Mm-hmm. So I think it kind of depends on who you are and how you can take it. Yeah. So what what are some things that you like to do that bring yourself apart from other people? Uh, so that's kind of a problem because I don't play any sports. I got cut from the baseball team two years in a row. Now, unfortunately, I am not part of the baseball team. I guess I write for this, but this column, I don't think this really helped me in the college's standing. I hope they take a chance on someone who has no discernible good qualities for a college. Oh, man. No, you got some good qualities. Um, but you did talk about, you made, you got some pretty good jokes in, in the column. Uh, I like the one about you can go to, uh, what was it, Krusty Krab University or Krusty Clown University and uh, Trump University. And uh, you could just turn out fine, but now you need to go to a good college to help your future. But what colleges were you kind of thinking about? Well, thinking about that Simpsons episode where Homer goes to Clown University mm-hmm. and he has to like, they mistake him for the real Krusty the Clown, but Krusty the Clown, clown owns like outstanding best the mafia. So now they kidnap him and they think it's Krusty, but it's Homer. And I yeah. kind of wanted to avoid that fate by going to like Harvard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Um, so now, now that you're approaching senior year and the college process is really going to double down and get really tough for all of us, what's what's something you're planning on doing to make it a little less stressful? Uh, well, definitely not taking all of the classes I did last time. Uh, I think you probably shouldn't take like every one of the hardest classes you can, even if like people tell you you could, it's probably not just like good for you. So I'm definitely taking sort of like not as like super hard of a course load next year. And I guess for the, uh, I guess for the resume next year, I mean, keep your eyes peeled for Focus Summer Magazine coming out on the first day of school. Yes, sir. And then you have a lot of, your column basically talks about what the colleges say and what it actually means. How did you figure out what it had? What, how'd you read between the lines and figure out uh, that's not what they mean? This is what they mean. Well, when every college that has been in an urban area for around 300 years talks about their great relationships with Native Americans, you can sort of infer something. And uh, in what, I was in one of the seminars, well, one of the ones that I went to, there were like five colleges and they all just right after each other said the exact same things about holistic, diverse community, great relationship with Native Americans. Like you would have thought they were the same colleges, but they were like from places across the country. So that one was kind of odd. Do you think there's any way to tell like the uniqueness of each university, even though when the, the people, the spokespeople from each college come and say the same things? How do you figure out the difference between each college? Uh, 
be honest, you just got to search up the college name on Twitter or Reddit, and then you see what the students are pressing about it. Like, it's the it's usually pretty good, but sometimes you can see some really, like, disgusting cafeteria food that people whine about on Twitter. So yeah. that's kind of funny. Yeah. And uh, I guess my last question is, how many, what do you think would be the best college for you? Uh, the best college for me, probably the fictional Krusty the Clown University. It's been a lifelong dream to be a cartoon clown, but unfortunately that one's fictional. So I'll just have to settle for something second tier, like, I don't know, Yale. Yeah, I wish I could go to Krusty Clown College as well, but it's not for everyone. All right, thanks, Miles. Thanks, Dylan. That's it. Uh, before we end this, uh, we just want to say a huge thank you for listening uh, through all these months. Uh, me and Pete have had a blast doing this, um, talking to all these people, getting new perspectives, um, and just running a podcast. So thanks for everybody that listened. Thanks for everybody on staff that supported us um, and gave us this chance. And uh, we'll, uh, we look forward to your continued support. Yeah. Uh, and special thanks to Xander Bowles and Blake Moulton, who have done our music throughout the year uh they've been fantastic and um you should expect great things from the next host dylan it'll be great thank you guys so much peace